0: Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, come and so empower the preaching of your word that we will know that we've heard from you this morning. Lord, please put your spirit upon this congregation. Make us fertile ground for the good news of the scriptures, Lord, and grant me, the preacher, a mouth to speak and a heart that is on fire, Lord, for you, for love of you, and for love of your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This year during Lent, I have encouraged us to fast from fear and from fury and from foolishness. And if you want to go back and dig into what I mean by that, you can listen to the sermon I preached back on Ash Wednesday. It's posted online. But in keeping with that suggested fast, I'm so thankful that the lectionary commends Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, for our reading this morning. That's the assigned reading for today, the lectionary. This on the second Sunday in Lent. It's exactly what we need to hear. We need that kind of encouragement, and I think there could be no greater remedy for fear and outrage than this passage of Scripture because we do indeed need encouragement this morning, Because in one sense, y'all, we've been in a perpetual Lent since last March. Uh, We've been giving up stuff we never meant to give up, you know, like jobs. Or, um, you know, graduations and school and sports and restaurants and, and most importantly being with extended family and being together with friends. So we don't really need to be burdened again with giving something up something else up. But I want to remind you that when we do fast during Lent, when we do practice self-denial and abstinence, we don't do that in order to, listen, we don't do that to beat ourselves up, to make ourselves miserable. That's not what Lenten fasting is about. Instead, it is about making, listen, it's about making room. We let go of some things so that we can make room for the good things that God has to give us. And that's exactly what Jesus says in that gospel text we heard this morning, Mark 8, 34 through 36, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, that sounds like Lent, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Did you hear that? We deny ourselves. We lose our self-directed living in order to actually make room for life. Lose your life, find your life. That is the mystery of following Jesus. When we let go of fear and when we let go of outrage, we let go of foolishness, we do so, so that our hands can be open to receive joy remember that psalm we just offered up to God in worship, Psalm 16? This is a verse we should remember. We ought to memorize Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. So God's desire for us is life. And then it says, in your presence, in your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. And I love this. At your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Where are pleasures forevermore? In God's right hand. Does God want us to have pleasure? Evidently, there it is right hand. That's where we seek them. And the joy and pleasure that God has offered us are really at work here in Romans chapter 8. In this text, God offers us encouragement that is infinitely better than fear and fury, and heck, it's even better than chocolate and beer. So let's just dive right into the text. So I wanna ask you this morning, and this is for believers. Believers, are you fearful this morning? Are you anxious? Are you outraged about what is going on in the world around you? Well, then I want you to be encouraged because God is using all of those circumstances, the very things that would bring you fear or that would make you angry or there are difficulties in your life, God is using all of those circumstances, even the bad ones, for your ultimate good. Look at what it says. We probably have memorized this verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, those who love God, all things, some things? No, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What a great word for us but let's make sure we hear that correctly you know paul is not saying everything is good he's not saying all things are good but that all things by god's power work for good are made to work for good in the life of the believer and secondly he's not saying that all things work for the good of for everyone no this is for those who love god so if you're if you don't love god you're not called according to his purpose that's the conditions paul gives then not all things work for good. But if we have embraced Jesus Christ, we've accepted Him by faith, we've entered into that love relationship with the Lord, we've experienced the new birth by faith and baptism, then, then all things, God is making all things to work for good for us. Nothing can defeat God's good will and His sovereign purpose in the life of the believer. Did you hear that? Nothing you have been through in the last 12 months is able to defeat God's good will and purposes in the life of the believer. I think Paul may have had the, the Old Testament story. In fact, I'm, I'm going to ask him about this one day when I get to see him. I'm sure there will be a line, you know, people wanting to ask Paul. All right, Paul, there's some stuff you said in Timothy we really need to talk about. <laughs> But I think Paul may have had that Old Testament story of Joseph in mind when he penned these words, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. You remember that story. It's in Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. And it's just a terrific story. It is really probably, it it comes down, you think about this, this is the first novella uh, that we have access to so to speak broadly have access to goes back over 3500 years and that wonderful story you may remember it Um, Joseph is a part of what we might delicately call a dysfunctional family Uh, no they were a thoroughly eat up family is what they were And he was the favorite son of his father. And moreover, his father made sure that all the other children knew that Joseph was the favorite son. And that really endeared him to his older brothers. (laughs) Not at all. So when they had the opportunity, they threw him in a pit and then sold him to a caravan that was on its way down to Egypt, and so he was sold into slavery. And then they took that special coat his daddy had made for him and kind of ripped it up and put some sheep blood on it and said, Oh, father, your son Joseph got eaten up by wild animals. Well, eventually, uh, Joseph is sold to the head of what's uh, uh, the Egyptian secret police, Potiphar, uh, that, that gentleman. And because of Joseph's wisdom and business skills, Joseph quickly becomes the manager of Potiphar's entire estate. But then Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. You think about it. Joseph's been thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. He's in Egypt. He's kind of risen in the ranks. But then he's a good-looking young man, and Potiphar's wife takes notice of him. She makes advances towards him. He refuses those advances, and she screams rape. And they drag him off and throw him, because of his integrity, they throw him into prison. And then he's forgotten by those who promise to appeal for his release. Disaster upon disaster. Finally, though, his gift to interpret dreams is brought to Pharaoh's attention and he is released. And based on Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph warns of a coming famine that threatens the entire ancient Middle East. And so he is put in charge of preparing the country for the impending disaster. And when famine does strike Egypt in the ancient Middle East, Egypt is well prepared for and the people have plenty to eat. But well, that's a big famine. It spreads over a lot of places and even to Canaan. So, who should come down from Canaan to Egypt seeking grain for food? None other than those mean old brothers of Joseph who had him sold into slavery. Now, at this point, I would expect Joseph to take revenge on his brothers. Surely he would be seething with fury. But that is not what happens. Instead, Joseph ends up bringing his entire family, his aging father, his youngest brother he's never met, all of their wives and children and cattle and and sheep and goats, everybody goes down to Egypt, and Joseph gives them the best land in the country, and he takes care of them. Now, here's the question. How does Joseph do that? How could he do such a thing? His brother's evil schemes, in one sense, have what? They ruined his life. They, look, looking at this naturally, they ruined Joseph's life. How can he forgive them and care for them? Well, listen to what it says. Genesis chapter 50, verses 18 through 20. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Listen to what he says now, okay? And this relates directly to the passage in Romans. As for you, you meant evil against me. You meant evil. But God meant it for good. Amen. I've seen that. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph realized that God had been with him through every disaster, every betrayal, every hardship, and God made all of those bad things work together for good because Joseph loved God and he was called according to his purposes. You know, Lisa and I have seen the same thing over the last 12 months. Things that on the the surface look evil. Back in the beginning of 2020, we started the year with a, uh, with a bang. It was so t- 2020, uh, Lisa's job was eliminated where she worked, and so we lost her employment. We lost, you know, something that we like to have, which is called money. <laughs> it looked like a disaster. But God has been outrageously faithful, and there has, there has been good that came from that lisa's able to be much more involved in in ministry than ever before and we get to be together in a way we haven't been in a long long time and not only that i mean we've all been living through this pandemic and yet there have been multiple times in the last year that lisa and i have turned to each other because of what happened in, in, as a result of a bad thing the pandemic good things did occur and we would say thank god for COVID." Now, I know it's a terrible disease and people have died from it, but God has even made that work for good. Realizing that for those who God loves and he works all things for the good of those who who love him and are called according to his purpose, that, that realization, when we lay hold of that, it crushes fear and it pulls the fangs of fury. Now, Paul's rhapsody of encouragement gets even better, Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? Back when uh, Lisa and I were children and we were in school together, there were, our class, your class probably had one too. We had a class athlete. Greg McFadden was our class athlete. and if We were pray, playing softball or dodgeball or kickball or volleyball, or any other sport, we wanted Greg on our team. Because if Greg is for you, who can be against you? We got somebody a lot better than Greg on our side. We need to remember that, the big picture, that God is for us. That is the big picture. And when we recall that, fear and anxiety fall away. Much of our fear, much of our outrage exists precisely because we've lost eternal perspective. We've lost the perspective of the big picture. Jesus tells us what the big picture is and how we lose it in Mark chapter 4, verse 19. He's told the parable of the sower, and then he gets down to this. This is exactly what takes our attention away from the fact that God is for us and it causes us to fall into fear, causes us to lose our joy. Jesus said the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. So the desire for riches, the anxieties of life, troubles. And when we focus on those, and he even says, and the desire for other things. What are those things? Just other things than God. It chokes the word. It takes the joy out of our lives. We will be defeated if we let worldly things dominate our affections. You know, joy comes from looking past our present comforts or sufferings and set our hearts on the eternal pleasure, the eternal pleasure and worth of knowing God. All, every time our Christian life begins to lose its vitality, its joy, its verve, its excitement, is because we have begun to look at our present situation, even if it's good, instead of having our heart fixed on God. You know, Paul understood that in Philippians 3 8. This is what Paul said. Indeed, I count everything a loss as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And i got to tell you, I don't always feel like that. In fact, I don't even want to think about the percentages of how often I feel that way. But when we love Christ like Paul is describing there, it's like Jesus said in... um, Matthew 13, when he told the parable of the, of the treasure in the field. You know that parable. There's a man who finds a treasure in the field, and he buries it back again. And in, and with joy, he goes and sells everything he has in order to buy the field. Listen to that. It means this, is that he did, he did not come out a loser... By selling everything, he was a winner. He gained because the treasure was infinitely greater than anything he gave up. Jesus is that treasure. And when we recognize that, and that is our heart, then we're able to see that if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I've been reading recently. Recently, I read about a young Czech physician and a Christian dissident, Sylvester Kirschmeri who was arrested by the communist authorities in Czechoslovakia in, in 1951, he was able to boldly and joyfully stand for Jesus in the face of great opposition because he had his eyes on eternal things. Jesus was the most precious thing in his life. This is what he said. He says that he had the firm conviction that there could be, there could listen to this, there could not be anything more beautiful than to lay down my life for God. When that thought came to Kirschmeri in the police sedan minutes after his arrest, he burst into laughter. His captors were not amused. In his memoirs, This Saved Us, Kirschmeri recalls, that after repeated beatings, torture, and interrogations, he realized that the only way he could make it through the ordeal ahead was to rely entirely on faith. He says he decided to be like Peter, to close my eyes and throw myself into the sea. In my case, it truly was to plunge into physical and spiritual uncertainty, an abyss where only faith in God could guarantee safety. Material things which mankind regarded as certainties were fleeting and illusory, while faith, which the world considered to be ephemeral, was the most reliable and most powerful of foundations. The more I depended on faith, the stronger I became. The more that we realize that Jesus is all we need, the stronger and more joyful we will become if God is for us who can be against us. Sylvester Kershmery left prison in 1964, 13 year sentence. He spent the next 25 years continuing his work for the anti communist resistance. Along with other veterans of the underground church, he was a principal organizer of the 1988 candle demonstration in Bratislava, the Slovak capital. It served as a catalyst to the 1989 Velvet Revolution that restored freedom and democracy. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? And how much is God for you? Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all course what is he thinking about he's thinking about that that Genesis 22 passage we heard that's what Paul's thinking about there that it's God who doesn't stop in offering up his son out of love and loyalty to his beloved people he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him with him graciously Give us all things. God the Father offered the greatest treasure of heaven, his only Son, for you and for me. You know, we hear God the Father's voice from heaven twice. I think that's only two times that I can recall. In all of Matthew's gospel, it occurs twice. God speaks from heaven two times in Matthew's gospel. The first time is at Jesus' baptism. And the second time is at the transfiguration. And do you know what both times God says? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is what God has to say about Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my my greatest treasure with him. I am well pleased. But God's love and loyalty towards us are so great that he did not spare his beloved son for us. And there is even greater encouragement. So if God would not even spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all, how are we overcome? How are we overcome with fear and anxiety? We're gonna lose religious liberty. Yeah, it kinda looks like we probably are a little bit. Are we overcome with fear and anxiety? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's even greater encouragement, though. Romans 8, 34 just goes from point to point to point of encouragement. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here's what that means. I've always kind of that's been a hard sentence for me to understand. Christ Jesus, or who, is it, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is interceding, who indeed is interceding for us. Here's what I think, and in fact I'm convicted and convinced that this means. Who is Listen, who is responsible for the greatest crime ever committed? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? I am. You are. He died because of my sin. He died because of your sin, or as the great old hymn, Ah Holy Jesus, has it. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. To I, Lord Jesus, I, it was, denied thee. I crucified me. I crucified thee. Here's what this means. Here's what that passage means. The only one in the whole universe who ultimately has the right to condemn me. Who is it to condemn? Who has the ultimate authority to condemn? The greatest crime ever committed. I'm the greatest criminal ever there was. Who has the right to condemn me for that crime? It is Jesus Christ. He has the right to judge me because I brought him to the cross. But Paul says that same Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can condemn us, is actually the very one, listen, interceding, pleading our case before the Father right now. Lord, that is one of mine. That is one of my sheep that I bought with the price of my blood. Father, this is my beloved one who you have adopted, see, washed in my blood and clothed with Christ. I present this one before you and I plead for this one. So the one that would condemn us is the one that is interceding for us. Great encouragement. So brothers and sisters, I hope that that we will fall in love with Jesus during this Lenten time, letting go of those things that keep us anxious and fearful and angry in order to lay hold of the good gifts that God has for us. And when we do that, this is what we can say. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, does it, death or life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, what's going on right now or what may happen in the future nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good news, encouraging news, right in the middle of Lent. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged that if God is for you, who can be against you? And you will not be overcome by fear.